Welcome to Shipwreck Sunday, where we investigate disasters at sea and the impact that they have on the world today. My name is Eleanor. Today, we'll be discussing the sinking of MV Queen of the North, a Canadian Roro ferry that sank after years of sex, scandal, and two missing passengers the evening of her sinking. If you'd like to hear more about this insane sinking and the ship's story, stay tuned. Quick disclaimer for our younger audience before we dive in. This story does include details of a maritime disaster resulting in the loss of a vessel, sexual situations, and death that may be disturbing to some audiences. Viewer discretion is advised for those under the age of 13. Please keep in mind that I'm not a mariner or expert in the field of maritime history, but I've done my research. Okay, everyone, let's get into it. MV Queen of the North was not always the Queen of the North like Sansa Stark. She actually started as Stena Danica for the Stena line based in Sweden, being launched by A.G. Weser in Bremerhaven, Germany in 1969. The ship was launched on February 16, 1969, and she was to run the Gothenburg-Sweden to Frederikshavn-Denmark route for her owners. She'd be acquired by the Stena line after completion on June 28, 1969. Before we get too much further into this ship's biography, let's look at her specs. Stena Danica, as she's known right now, was a Roro ferry. For our younger audience members and anyone unaware, a Roro ferry is a roll-on, roll-off ferry ship that is meant to roll cars onto a car deck and roll them back off, hence the name. They are famously very unstable and easily capsize when water begins to fill the enormous car decks. Take MS Herald of Free Enterprise, for example. We have an episode on her if you're interested. Stena Danica displaced 8,806 gross registered tons, and in imperial measurements, she was 410 feet and 1 and 1 quarter inches long, had a beam of 64 feet and 9 and 1 eighth inches wide, and a draft of 17 feet and 2 and 1 quarter inches deep. In metric measurements, that's a length of 125 meters long, a beam of 19.74 meters wide, and a draft of 5.24 meters deep. As for installed power, she was equipped with two manned diesel SEV40-54 diesel engines, and with this setup, she could reach speeds up to 20 knots, which is 37 kilometers per hour and 23 miles per hour. As for capacity, Stana Danica could carry 700 passengers and 115 cars. Stana Danica lasted the Stana line until she was sold to BC Ferries in Canada for 13.875 million Canadian dollars. With this as well as federal import duties, the initial cost of Stana Danica for BC Ferries was $17.7 million in Canadian dollars. Here, she'd be renamed MV Queen of Surrey, and her port of registry would change to Victoria, British Columbia, Canada, with her route running from Horseshoe Bay in West Vancouver to Departure Bay in Nanaimo on Vancouver Island. British Columbia, if you're American and you're curious, touches the state of Washington in the Pacific Northwest. Seattle, Washington is about three and a half to four and a half hours away by ferry, depending upon which ferry you take. My mom has actually taken Roro ferries from Seattle to Vancouver before years ago when she was a young girl. As for Queen of Surrey, she was officially acquired in April of 1974, having her name changed by the then New Democratic Party Minister of Transportation and Communications, Robert Strachan, and was ready to set sail on her new route. 
This route is unique since it is quite busy and requires eight transits per day, and due to Queen of Surrey's Roro bow design, it quickly became apparent that she was not suitable for this route. Why? She couldn't be loaded and unloaded as quickly as she needed to be, since Roro ferries can be quite touchy. Because of this complication, she was decommissioned in 1976 and subsequently laid up at BC Ferries Dock at Dees Island in Vancouver, so the government could decide her fate. She could have been scrapped right then and there. In May of 1980, she completed a massive $10 million refit for longer haul Northern Service. In this refit, more staterooms were added as well as more restaurants and more cargo holds. After this refit, she was renamed once more, receiving the moniker we all know her for, MV Queen of the North. She'd be reassigned to a different route, instead running the inside passage route from Port Hardy on Vancouver Island to Prince Rupert in northwestern British Columbia. Occasionally, she'd also fill in for the Bella Bella Skidgate route that stopped in several small coastal villages, and this headed through the Hikate Strait. Some of these smaller villages were incredibly isolated due to the roads there being poor or non-existent, and so she was one of the main sources of transport, picking up residents and medical patients while offloading mail, supplies, and food for these smaller areas. She was once again refurbished in 1985 and was crowned the flagship of BC Ferries fleet. However, when MV Estonia tragically sank in 1994, Queen of the North would have a second set of internally welded doors installed in the bow visor to prevent flooding in heavy seas. To hear the crazy story and conspiracies surrounding MV Estonia, check out our video on her. It's one of my personal favorites. In 2001, she'd undergo another refit that would cost $500,000, and this was done at the Vancouver shipyards. This refit included a redesign and modernization of the passenger decks. Remember, she was built in the 60s, so some of her mid-century modern designs would be outdated at this point. I personally love mid-century modern design, but that's just me. There was a critical oversight during this refit we've got to mention. Because of her older single hull design, the ship was not designed to survive if there was a major hull breach or flooding of more than one bulkhead compartment. Yes, you heard me, one bulkhead compartment. For comparison's sake alone, Titanic could withstand four compartments on the port or starboard side flooded and two in the bow. So very technically speaking, Titanic was safer in modern times, all newer ferries are built to survive flooding of at least two bulkhead compartments flooding, and because of this major concern, MV Queen of the North was planned to be replaced between 2009 and 2011. However, she'd never make it to the scrapyard. We're going to get into the sinking, and it's a bit convoluted, so we're going to reconstruct it the best we can. I have to backwards reconstruct it, so I'm going to give the gist at first, and then as the investigation kicks in, we'll fill in with more details. Sound good to everyone? In short, MV Queen of the North ran aground on Gill Island in Wright Sound, about 135 kilometers or 73 nautical miles south of Prince Rupert, and she would sink about an hour after this. She sank at 12.25 a.m. or 12.43 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on March 22, 2006, with sources debating the exact time she disappeared under the water. According to news reports at the time, the vessel had apparently failed to make a planned course change and was one kilometer away from where she should have been when she ran aground. She was heading for Port Hardy from Prince Rupert at the time. Let's add a layer of detail. 
According to emergency responders, the ship sank in about an hour, which allowed time for passengers to escape in the ship's lifeboats. Eyewitnesses confirmed the approximate time between the accident and the sinking, and they also suggested MV Queen of the North sank stern first, which isn't common in the shipping world. At least not as far as my research has shown me. Her final position is 53 degrees 19.932 minutes north, 129 degrees 14.794 minutes west, roughly 77 meters or 84 yards west-northwest of her position cited in BC Ferries investigation. We'll cover that in just a bit. Captain Colin Henthorne, the master of MV Queen of the North, was off watch and was asleep in his bunk when the collision took place, with his second mate, Kevin Hilton, on break, and this left the fourth mate, Carl Lilgert, in command of the bridge at the time of the incident. Quartermaster Karen Breiker was the one piloting the ship at that time, so she was the helmswoman during this whole ordeal. For our younger listeners, the helmsman or helmswoman is the person who actually steers the ship and takes care of rudder controls, while the person at the con or manning the vessel gives the directions. It's a very efficient system, and most of the time, it works out well. According to the British Columbia Minister of Transportation, Kevin Falcon, the autopilot equipment had just been certified by Transport Canada as recently as March 2nd of 2006. So that was in perfect working order on March 22nd, 2006, when the sinking would take place. Of course, a distress call went out, and the first to arrive on scene were a large number of small fishing and recreational vessels from Hartley Bay, arrived in a tiny flotilla of sorts in the middle of the night to rescue their survivors. As for the official rescue, Joint Rescue Coordination Centre Victoria sent out Canadian Coast Guard vessels CCGC Point Henry, CCGC Sir Wilfred Lawyer, CCGS Vector, CCGC W.E. Ricker, and CCGC Kitimat 2, alongside two CH-149 Cormorant helicopters and one CC-115 Buffalo aircraft launched from the 442 Transport and Rescue Squadron at CFB Comex. This squad was on their way to the scene of the sinking, but it would take some time. Originally, the evacuation of MV Queen of the North was reported as smooth, practically textbook. However, two days later on March 24, 2006, horror stories of chest-high water and crew members being trapped came to light. And according to the official BC Ferries press release, 99 out of 101 passengers and crew were safely transported off the ship, with only a few minor injuries reported among them. Many of them found refuge in the nearby Hartley Bay. But, Eleanor, what happened to the other two? Well, they were considered missing at that time, dear listeners, but we now know the truth. These two people were Shirley Rosette and Gerald Foisey of 100 Mile House, British Columbia. Apparently, these two had failed to reach the lifeboats and unfortunately perished when the ship sank, being the sinking's only two victims. There's a lot of reasons why they could have failed to reach the boat deck. They could have been stuck, either mechanical issues with door locks or something of that nature, or they could have gotten trapped by water. There's also a huge possibility that they got lost. Number one thing you should take away from this is if you are setting out on a cruise, study the layout of the vessel you're taking before you set sail. It just might save your life. Allegedly, a passenger told police that the missing couple was present in Hartley Bay during the rescue, though a thorough search of the small 120-person Gitka at community turned up nothing. Further red flags came up when the couple didn't alert family members of their status after the sinking. 
Later, a submersible was sent down to the wreckage and the couple was not found in the wreckage. My guess is their bodies were carried out into the Pacific Ocean. Regardless, rest in peace to these two human beings and I wish their families and friends well. Here's where we are going to start to peel back the layers of the sinking and really get into the eyebrow-raising controversies and scandals that surround the vessel. So I'm going to start with the official investigations and then we'll move into newer news articles as well as eyewitness accounts. Let's start with the BC Ferries crisis response. The response from BC Ferries CEO David Hahn was that ferry travel is still safe despite the tragic emergency incident because of the quick response of rescuers. Essentially, even if a ship sinks, you're more likely to survive because of rescue efforts. Still, I wouldn't want to be on a ship that's sinking. Han also said that a top-speed collision with Gill Island would, quote, rip apart the hull of any ship, even a massive cruise ship. Gordon Campbell, the premier of British Columbia, agreed with this and met with survivors in Prince Rupert on the day of the incident. To me, it was kind of tactless because of what he was assuring them, but I'll let you be the judge of that. He was expressing utter confidence in the ferry system, stating that, quote, the fleet is safe. Not only is the fleet safe, but it is manned by professional crews that are trained in safety. This comes after MV Queen of the North was the second accident of a BC Ferries vessel within one year. On June 30th, 2005, MV Queen of Oak Bay lost power while docking. She didn't sink, but that's still concerning. All I have to say about that is, hmm. Coastal villages were instantly concerned. MV Queen of the North was not only a huge mode of transportation for them, but she also brought much needed supplies, food, and mail. BC Ferries would replace her with MV Queen of Prince Rupert temporarily until the true replacement vessel, MV Northern Adventure, began her service at the end of March in 2007. The Ferry Corporation declined suggestions that the replacement ferry be named in honor of the village of Hartley Bay that helped so many of the survivors. Honestly, that would have been a better name than Northern Adventure. On March 26, 2007, BC Ferries released their internal investigation into the sinking of MV Queen of the North. And in this report, they found that Queen of the North had failed to make the required course change, or any course change at all for that matter, at Sainty Point. And so the ship proceeded straight on the incorrect course for roughly 4 nautical miles, which is 7.4 kilometers and 4.6 miles. This went on for about 14 minutes until she grounded on Gill Island, going 17.5 knots, which is 32.4 kilometers per hour and 20.1 miles per hour. There was no evidence of alterations to speed at any time during the transit of Wright Sound, according to the investigation. And in conclusion, human factors were the primary cause of the sinking, as with many sinkings. Let's get into a more detailed account of this, however. BC Ferries completed their internal investigation as well as a separate investigation being conducted by the Transportation Safety Board of Canada. Well, on March 26, 2006, MV Queen of the North was found by a manned submersible at a depth of roughly 427 meters or 1,401 feet down. According to BC Ferries, she was intact and, quote, resting in silt on the keel and the silt covers the hull up to what's called the rubbing strake and above in some areas. Just for clarification, on a vessel's hull, a strake is a longitudinal course of planking or plating which runs from the boat's stem post to the stern post or transom. At the time she was found, her location was noted at 53 degrees 19.91 minutes north and 129 degrees 14.72 minutes west. 
Pictures from the wreck were given to the Transportation Safety Board of Canada as part of the investigation into the cause of the sinking. It's about to get a bit spicy. On March 26, 2007, a whole year after MV Queen of the North was found, BC Ferries released the results of their investigation. They blamed the accident entirely on human error, specifically by three crew members. The helmswoman and quartermaster who was at the wheel of the ship, Karen Riker, the second officer, Kevin Hilton, and the fourth officer, Carl Lilgert. The two officers were in charge of navigation. A Vancouver Sun editorial written on the accident makes note that two ferry crew members on the watch, Hilton and Lilgert, were uncooperative during BC Ferry's internal inquiry. David Hahn doubted that new information would be readily available from any future disciplinary inquiries because of this uncooperativeness. The Vancouver Sun also stated that the BC Ferries report, quote, dismisses the idea that confusion over how to use new bridge equipment installed a month before the crash had anything to do with the sinking. The BC Ferries report highlights the role of fourth officer Carl Lilgert since he had control of the ship from Sainty Point, though he'd failed to make the correct, necessary course correction. According to the report, the Vancouver Sun stated the following, quote, just before the crash, the fourth officer screamed at the helmswoman to make a bold course correction, a 109-degree turn, and to switch off the autopilot. But she, the helmswoman, stated not knowing where the switch was located. The BC Ferries report questions the validity of this evidence as the autopilot disengages simply with a single switch and would have been operated numerous times by the helmswoman. However, in its own report, BC Ferries states the master found it necessary to post a note for navigational crew on how to operate the autopilot and included procedures for changing modes. Evidence was given that the woman at the wheel didn't know the location of the ship when she took over as lookout, or that the ferry was about to crash, until she saw trees. She said she was asked to make only one, maybe two, small course changes as directed by the fourth officer after she started her shift, but that was until just before the vessel hit Gill Island. According to the Vancouver Sun, they do cite an earlier safety board advisory which said that the bridge crew, quote, were confused about how to use a new steering mode selector switch that, among other things, controls whether the ship is on autopilot or manual steering, installed in a retrofit in February 2006. However, BC Ferries states that the bridge crew was on watch that night, chose to use newly installed steering controls in a way different from the manner instructed, but that this choice didn't seem to have caused the grounding of the Queen of the North. David Hahn stated, quote, the ship never altered course at all. It never changed its speed, it just ran straight into Gill Island. There's nothing to indicate they ever tried anything. It's just human error. I don't know, to me all of this sounds fishy. The three crew were reportedly cooperative with a separate transportation safety board inquiry into the tragedy. According to newspaper columnist for the province, Michael Smith, the TSB did not have the authority to award blame to any party for the sinking, whereas BC Ferries did. Consequently, no one would be held accountable. At least, not yet. On March 27, 2006, just five days after the ship sank, Alexander and Maria Kotai filed a lawsuit against BC Ferries, citing negligence. They claimed the company failed to train the crew adequately, keep proper lookout, supervise the bridge crew, operate at a safe speed, and most importantly, conduct the evacuation to prevent or minimize injuries. 
The Kotais had been moving house at the time from Kitimat to Nainamo, and they lost many of their personal possessions in the sinking. We don't know how much they sought in damages, but it's understandable that they were angry. It took a year, one month, and two days for BC Ferries to finally fire the three crew members blamed for the sinking of MB Queen of the North. According to BC Ferries, the three employees were fired because they weren't cooperating fully with all investigators. The BC Ferries and Marine Workers Union represented the ferry crew members, with the union indicating it, that it would appeal the terminations. Meanwhile, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or RCMP, continued a criminal investigation into the sinking. The TSB's final report would then be released on March 12, 2008, and the main conclusion found here was that sound navigational practices and regulations were not followed by the four unionized navigational crew at the time. Human error causes most sinkings, in my experience, and if it doesn't cause the sinking, it can worsen things for sure. On the morning of March 16, 2010, in British Columbia Provincial Court in Vancouver, Carl Lilgert received a charge of criminal negligence causing death. He was the navigating officer responsible for steering the vessel at the time of the incident, so it makes sense that this charge would fall into his lap. The charge was reported in a statement released by the province's criminal justice branch. Okay, here's where we get into some controversy. Don't worry, by the end I'll clear the air as much as I can. In an April 26, 2013 article released by the National Post, Carl Lilgert was allegedly either fighting or having sex with a former lover on the bridge of MV Queen of the North the night she sank. This allegation came straight from the prosecution. According to this article, the allegation was dropped on the last day of testimony, which had spanned three months, and Crown lawyer Michelle Hote delivered the accusation, saying Lilgert also fabricated evidence he provided. According to Hote, Lilgert was distracted from his navigation duties by his former lover, who was allegedly the only other person on the bridge when she crashed. This lover, you might be wondering, is none other than the helmswoman, Karen Breiker. Lilgert, of course, denied these accusations, stating he did make course alterations and that he didn't understand why the electronic data recorded didn't reflect this. I don't know what to believe, but the prosecution had a lot more data and testimony supporting this than Lilgert and Breiker had to deny it. Not saying this is what happened, but if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it might be a duck. There was another ship that had something similar to this, and it was coasting Concordia. Check it out if you like scandals. On May 13, 2013, Carl Lilgert was convicted of two counts of criminal negligence causing death in British Columbia Supreme Court by a jury after five days of deliberations. And in 2015, the Supreme Court of Canada declined to hear an appeal. It was expected he'd serve out the entirety of that four-year sentence. As of the recording of this episode, I'm not sure if he was released. Of course, this wasn't the only concern with the sinking. The environment is another very important factor. On MV Queen of the North was approximately 220,000 liters of diesel fuel and 23,000 liters of lubricating oil. In imperial measurements, that would be 48,000 imperial gallons and 58,000 U.S. gallons of diesel fuel, and 5,100 imperial gallons and 6,100 U.S. gallons of lubricating oil. She also had 16 vehicles that were also filled with gasoline, and her sinking created an oil slick that quickly spread throughout the sound. That morning, containment efforts commenced, and on March 25, 2006, officials stated that it, quote, appears no major damage has been done to the environment in that area. 
The long-term effects on Wright Sound biosystem, especially the shellfish population, are not known at this time. Officials doubted salvaging the ship would be possible, and Burard Clean Operations was hired to conduct environmental response operations as required. In the legislature in March 2007, Shane Simpson, the NDP opposition critic for the environment, questioned the lack of action in the previous year of removing fuel from the sunken ship itself. Barry Penner, the Minister of Environment, advised against armchair engineering, stating that waterways and sunken ships were federal responsibilities. BC Ferries would be working with the Canadian Coast Guard to put together a plan to rescue the environment from spilling fuel. In simpler terms, Penner told Simpson to stay in his lane. The story of MV Queen of the North is bizarre and controversial, making it tantalizing for researchers like me. However, the important thing to remember is the victims of this tragedy. May they rest in peace. If you're interested in another bizarre, harrowing sinking, check out our episode on the Blue Lady, MS Achille Laro. Thanks so much to our lovely patrons for subscribing and supporting the channel and myself as a creator. You guys are awesome and it really does help us out. If you'd like to help support this channel and future episodes, go to patreon.com slash shipwrecksunday to join. Thank you for tuning in to Shipwreck Sunday. If you liked this episode and are listening on YouTube, please give us a like, leave us a comment, and subscribe to our channel. If you liked this episode and are listening on Spotify, Samsung Podcasts, Amazon Music, or another podcast service, please subscribe for more content and leave us a 5-star review, as it does help us reach more listeners like you. If you have any ships you'd like us to cover, please leave us a comment and you might hear your favorite ship here on the podcast. Check out our community tab for updates and to interact with us. And we are also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Tune in next Sunday for the story of RMS Queen Mary 2, a current day Cunard ocean liner and one of the few ocean liners that remain. Have a great week and we'll see you next time.